Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome back, everyone, to the Mysteries Abound podcast, and this is your host, Paul, and this is episode 33. Our first story this week goes back to an old favourite, from the www.mania.com, Lair of the Beasts, The Nessie Files, and it's by Nick Redfern. No less than 250 million years ago, Movements in the Earth's crust led to the creation of a huge rift across Scotland that today is known as the Great Glen. As the centuries passed, the deeper parts of the Glen filled with water, and it now exists in the form of three main lakes, or lochs, to give them their correct title. Loch Owich, Loch Lochy, and Loch Ness. For more than a century and a half, the three lochs have been connected by the 60-mile-long Caledonian Canal, which provides passage for small marine vehicles from the North Sea to the Atlantic Ocean. By far the largest of the three locks is Loch Ness, 23 miles in length and almost a mile wide and 755 feet deep. It contains more water than any other lake in the combined British Isles. Surrounded by trees, mountains, ancient castles, and famous for its deep and dark waters, it is very little wonder indeed that Loch Ness is viewed by many people as being both a magical and a sinister location. And as practically everyone and anyone who has ever marvelled at the mysteries of our world will be only too well aware, the Loch is the alleged home of Nessie, arguably the planet's most famous long-necked lake monster. But precisely what the creatures of Loch Ness really may be is a matter of deep debate and controversy. Some researchers conclude that a still-living colony of plesiosaurs, carnivorous reptiles that surfaced at the start of the Jurassic period, lurk within the deep waters of Loch Ness. Others believe that the creatures may be giant, monstrous eels, and of course there are some who conclude that the stories are nothing more than fabrications, 
and an ingenious ploy to help boost Scotland's tourist-based economy. For certain branches of the British government and military, however, the monsters of Loch Ness have secretly been a favourite topic of investigation for decades. For example, in the late 1970s, official documents made available to the public in 2005 reveal the then Conservative government of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher had seriously considered a request to use dolphins in a search for the creatures. If the existence of the monsters could be proven, the official world thought it would have had a very positive bearing upon Scotland's tourist industry. Amid complaints from the Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, however, the plan was never put into action. But still, the messy file remained open. Then in the mid-1980s, now declassified files demonstrate, the government secretly tried to determine if the Loch Ness monsters were at risk from hunters and poachers. At one point, government officials were seriously considering drafting new legislation to protect the animals, despite the fact that no one could even be sure they existed. Eventually the documents show the government concluded that the legislative framework to protect the monster is available, provided she or he is identified by scientists whose reputation will carry weight with the British Museum. Of course, so far no such identification has been made, unless someone within the government knows something we don't. And perhaps they do. In 1965, additional files show the British Royal Air Force's Joint Air Reconnaissance Intelligence Centre at RAF Brampton analysed film footage taken in 1960 that purported to show a Loch Ness monster and concluded one can presumably rule out the idea that it is any sort of submarine vessel, for various reasons, which leads the conclusion that it is probably an animate object. Perhaps one day we will learn more about the British government's real X-Files on the monsters of Loch Ness. And from the www.museumofhoaxes.com The Boy with the Golden Tooth In 1593 reports began to spread of a young boy in Silesia, seven-year-old Christoph Müller, who had grown a golden tooth. Jacob Horst, a professor of medicine at Julius University in Helmstedt, decided to investigate. He found the boy did indeed have a gold tooth set firmly in his jaw. Tests with a touchstone, a small tablet of dark stone on which soft metals such as gold leave a visible trace, 
confirmed the gold was real, though not as high quality, Horst noted, as Hungarian gold. Horst wrote a 145-page treatise about the case, entitled Of the Golden Tooth of the Boy from Silesia, in which he attributed the golden tooth to astrological causes. He noted that the boy was born on December 22, 1585, when there was an unusual alignment of the planets that must have increased the heat of the sun, causing the bone in the boy's jaw to turn to gold. He also argued that the tooth was a portent of important events to come, the dawn of a new golden age for the Holy Roman Empire. However, because the tooth was located on the boy's left side, considered to be the sinister side, the golden age would be preceded by many calamities. Not all doctors agreed with Horst's opinion. Duncan Liddell, a Scottish physician living in Helmstedt, published his own analysis of the case, in which he argued that the boy's golden tooth had to be man-made. Time confirmed Liddell's analysis to be correct. The daily pressure of chewing, combined with the repeated tests with a touchstone, wore down the gold enough to reveal that it was merely a thin layer of metal skillfully fitted over the boy's tooth. At first the boy attempted to conceal this by refusing to allow any more learned gentleman to examine his tooth. However, a drunken nobleman became enraged when his request to see the tooth was refused and he stabbed the boy in the cheek. When a doctor came to suture the wound, he discovered the fraud. Christoph was taken to prison and the man who fitted the gold layer over his tooth reportedly fled. But despite having been created for deceptive, not therapeutic reasons, the golden tooth earned a distinguished place in the history of dentistry. It is considered to be the first documented case of the creation of a gold crown for a tooth. Our third story today comes from the www.sacreddestinations.com website. The Cern Abbas Giant in Dorset. The Cern Abbas Giant, also known as the Cern Giant and the Rude Man, is a chalk drawing of a naked man wielding a club on a hillside in Cern Abbas, a village in Dorset. It is the most visited site in the entire county. Both the identity and the date of the giant man remain a mystery, with theories ranging from a prehistoric fertility god to a 17th century parody of Oliver Cromwell. No one knows when the giant first appeared on the hillside of Cern Abbas. His presence is first recorded in 1694 in the accounts of the churchwarden of St Mary's Church in Cern Abbas, which records that three shillings were paid for repairing ye giant. 
Successive church wardens have used the symbol of the giant on lead plaques on the roof of the church. There are many theories about the identity of the Cernabas giant. One common interpretation is that he is a prehistoric or Celtic fertility god or symbol. There is a mound below the giant's now empty left hand, which could be a remnant of a severed head. This was a common ancient Celtic religious symbol. Adding credence to this theory is that another hillside chalk drawing, the White Horse of Uffington, is thought to date from this early period. And the Trendle, an earthwork on the hill above the giant, has been dated to the Iron Age. Another possibility is that the Cernabas giant is the Greco-Roman hero Hercules. Hercules was often depicted naked, with a club in his right hand and a loin skin draped over his left shoulder, and scientific tests suggest there might once have been something draped over the giant's left side. There is also a collection of Roman terracotta statues depicting the giant in the Museum of Arles in France. If the giant is Hercules, he may have been drawn during the reign of Emperor Commodus, who believed himself to be a reincarnation of Hercules and revived the hero's cult. A third theory is that the giant was drawn by the Benedictine monks of the nearby Cern Abbey. It may not be the sort of drawing one expects from monks, but a similar figure once existed close to the Benedictine Priory at Wilmington in Sussex. In addition, this theory could explain why the apparently pagan image was allowed to survive so close to a major monastery. Of course, a later date for the giant would explain this too. Departing from all these theories of an early date is the interesting possibility that the Cernabas giant is actually a 17th century parody of Oliver Cromwell. In 1774, Reverend John Hutchins claimed the giant was created by Lord Denzel Holes, the owner of the hill from 1642 to 1666, to satirise the puritanical rule of Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell was mockingly referred to as England's Hercules by his enemies. Despite a commission of numerous scholars hosted by Bournemouth University in 1996, the question of the giant's origins remains unanswered. In 1997, students from the same university provided the giant with a female friend as a field archaeology experience. She was only temporary, however, and the Cernabas giant stands alone on the hillside. Academic study aside, Popular belief has long had it that the Cernabas giant is an aid to fertility, and that lovemaking within the figure's prominent male organ assists in conception. In addition, young women used to sleep on the giant, preferably within the phallus, to ensure a future marriage. For hundreds of years it was the local custom to erect a maypole within the nearby earthwork known as the Trendle where childless couples would dance to promote fertility.
and whilst we're in the mood to visit older stories done before and just look to see if there are any updates, from the www.unmuseum.org, The Lines of Nazca in Peru. In the Peruvian desert about 200 miles south of Lima, there lies a plain between the Inca and Nazca valleys. Across this plain, in an area measuring 37 miles long and one mile wide, is an assortment of perfectly straight lines, many running parallel, others intersecting, forming a grand geometric form. In and around the lines there are also trapezoidal zones, strange symbols and pictures of birds and beasts, all etched on a giant scale, that can only be appreciated from the sky. The figures come in two types, biomorphs and geoglyphs. The biomorphs are some 70 animal and plant figures that include a spider, hummingbird, monkey and a 1,000 foot long pelican. The biomorphs are grouped together in one area on the plain. Some archaeologists believe they were constructed around 200 BC, about 500 years before the geoglyphs. There are about 900 geoglyphs on the plain. Geoglyphs are geometric forms that include straight lines, triangles, spirals, circles and trapezoids. They are enormous in size. The longest straight line goes nine miles across the plain. Though discovered by Peruvian archaeologist Toribio Major Zespi, who spotted them while hiking through the surrounding hills in 1927, the forms are so difficult to see from the ground that they were not widely known until the 1930s, when aircraft spotted them while surveying for water. The plain crisscrossed by these giant lines, with many forming rectangles, has a striking resemblance to a modern airport. The Swiss writer Eric von Däniken even suggested they had been built for the convenience of ancient visitors from space to land their ships. As tempting as it might be to subscribe to this theory, the desert floor at Nazca is soft earth and loose stone, not tarmac, and would not support the landing wheels of either an aircraft or a flying saucer. So why are the lines there? The American explorer Paul Cossack, who made his first visit to Nazca in the 1940s, suggested that the lines were astronomically significant and that the plane acted as a giant observatory. He called them the largest astronomy book in the world. Gerald Hawkins, an American astronomer, tested this theory in 1968 by feeding the position of a sample of lines into a computer and having a program calculate how many lines coincided with an important astronomical event. Hawkins showed the number of lines that were astronomically significant were only about the same number that would be the result of pure chance. This makes it seem unlikely Nazca is an observatory. Perhaps the best theory for the lines and symbols belongs to Tony Morrison, the English explorer. By researching the old folk ways of the people on the Andes Mountains, Morrison discovered a tradition of wayside shrines linked by straight pathways. The faithful would move from shrine to shrine praying and meditating. Often the shrine was as simple as a small pile of stones. Morrison suggests that the lines at Nazca were similar in purpose and on a vast scale. The symbols may also have served as special enclosures for religious ceremonies.
How were they built? The lines were apparently made by brushing away the reddish iron oxide covered pebbles that composed the desert surface and uncovering the white coloured sand underneath. In most places, wind, rain and erosion would quickly remove all traces of this within a few years. At Nazca though, the lines have been preserved because it is such a windless, dry and isolated location. A writer by the name of Jim Woodman believes the lines and figures could not have been made without somebody in the air to direct the operations. You simply can't see anything from ground level, states Woodman. You can't appreciate any of it from anywhere except from above. You can't tell me the Nazca builders would have gone to the monumental efforts they did without ever being able to see it. Woodman has proposed that ancient hot air balloons were used to get an aerial view of the construction. To prove his hypothesis, Woodman constructed a balloon using materials that would have been available to the Nazca people. He was able to conduct a successful flight, though it only lasted two minutes. Most researchers are extremely sceptical of Woodman's conclusions, however, as they find little evidence in the remains left by the Nazca of any balloon construction or operation. It is more likely that the Nazca people used simple surveying techniques in their work. Straight lines can be made easily for great distances with simple tools. Two wooden stakes placed as a straight line would be used to guide the placement of a third stake along the line. One person would sight along the first two stakes and instruct a second person in the placement of the new stake. This could be repeated as many times as needed to make an almost perfectly straight line miles in length. The evidence that the line markers use this technique exists in the form of the remains of a few stakes found at the ends of some of the lines. The symbols were probably made by drawing the desired figure at some reasonable size, then using a grid system to divide it up. The symbol could then be redrawn at full scale by recreating the grid on the ground and working on each individual square one at a time. Recently, two researchers, David Johnson and Steve Maybe, have advanced a theory that the geoglyphs may be related to water. The Nazca Plain is one of the driest places on Earth, getting less than one inch of rain a year. Johnson, while looking for sources of water in the region, noticed that ancient aqueducts seem to be connected with some of the lines. Johnson thinks that the shapes may be a giant map of underground water sources traced on the land. Maybe is working to gather evidence that might confirm this theory. Other scientists are more sceptical, but admit that in a region where finding water was vital to survival, there might well be some connection between the ceremonial purpose of the lines and water. Johann Reinhard, a cultural anthropologist with the National Geographic Society, found that villages in Bolivia walk along straight pathways to shrines while praying and dancing for rain. Something similar may have been done at the ancient Nazca lines. A recently discovered headless body suggests that human sacrifice was used by the Nazca people in religion ceremonies. 
Human sacrifice and decapitation were part of powerful rituals that would have allayed fears by invoking the ancestors to ensure fertility and the continuation of Nazca society, wrote Christina Conley of Texas State University in an article in Current Anthropology. The decapitation of the La Tiza individual appears to have been part of a ritual associated with ensuring agricultural fertility and the continuation of life and rebirth of the community. The body is one of eight found in the Nazca area, buried seated with no head. A ceramic jar painted with an image of a head was found next to the remains. The head on the jar has a tree with eyes growing out of it, making it seem likely that the sacrifice was part of a fertility ceremony. What was done with the heads of the victims? The Nazca were known to collect trophy heads. The Nazca removed the brain and soft tissue from the skulls, sewed the lips closed with cactus spines, and drilled a hole through the forehead to accommodate a loop of woven rope. The heads were then hung on ropes for display. Originally these were considered to be war trophies collected from distant tribes, but recent DNA analysis shows that the heads came from the Nazca population itself, suggesting that the motive was religious in nature. The lions at Nazca aren't the only landscape figures South America boasts. About 850 miles south of the plain is the largest human figure in the world, laid out upon the side of Solitary Mountain in Chile. The giant of Atacama stands 393 feet high and is surrounded by lines similar to those at Nazca. Along the Pacific coast in the foothills of the Andes Mountains is etched a figure resembling a giant candelabrum. Further south, Sierra Pintada, which means the painted mountain in Spanish, is covered with vast pictures including spirals, circles, warriors and a condor. Archaeologists speculate that these figures clearly visible from the ground, served as guideposts for Inca traders. And from the LiveScience.com website, What is a Kraken? By Benjamin Radford. In the new film Clash of the Titans, Zeus, King of the Gods, barks the order to release the Kraken. The term is becoming a cult-like catchphrase. But what is a Kraken and why would anyone want to release it? In the film, the Kraken is a massive multi-limbed monster that roars menacingly and can destroy cities with a sweep of its arms. It seems to be the ultimate threat, Zeus's nuclear option to teach unruly and disrespectful humans a lesson they will never forget. Though the filmmakers took plenty of artistic license in depicting the Kraken, they did not have to start from scratch. In fact, the Kraken was first described in a manuscript about a thousand years ago. Scandinavian mythology depicted the Kraken as so large that its body appeared as several small islands. 
unsuspecting sailors would be lured towards land until the islands erupted out of the water into a terrifying tangle of tentacles that easily pulled the ships to their watery doom. Centuries ago, when the line between legendary beast and zoological reality was blurry, the kraken was only one of several fantastic animals whose existence was debated, including dragons and sea monsters. In 1752, a Scandinavian bishop published a presumably non-fiction book titled Natural History of Norway, in which he included a section on sea monsters. He described the monstrous kraken as round, flat and full of arms. About a century later, science finally attached a zoological name to the kraken. By the late 1800s, scientists had enough reliable sightings and evidence, including bodies washed up on Newfoundland beaches, to officially name and identify the beast. Stories of the kraken were likely inspired by a real marine monster, the giant squid. And from one mystery of the deep to another, from the www.unknowncountry.com website, the mystery of the Altanen in Tanner. Between 1962 and 1979, the NSF polar research vessel Altanen surveyed Antarctic waters, studying the ocean and ocean bottom. In 1964, the ship photographed an unusual object at a depth of 13,500 feet. At the time, there was no submarine that could have carried a piece of technology to this depth. The object appears to be a pole rising from the ocean floor with 12 spokes radiating from it, each ending in a sphere. The spokes are at 15 degree angles to each other. It is located at approximately 1,000 miles south of Cape Horn, beneath some of the most inhospitable seas in the world. Marine biologists have speculated that it might be some sort of an organism, largely because it is otherwise so difficult to explain. However, there is no form of marine life that looks remotely like this object. There exists the possibility that it is an antenna or other scientific instrument that was lost by an early research vessel. But once again, this would appear to be a very forced explanation. It seems unlikely that an object could drop through three miles of ocean and anchor itself on the bottom. 
In addition, the position of the antenna is so exact and so strangely significant that it would seem almost certain that it was intentionally put there. Who did it, with what technology and why, remains unknown. However, it's clear that there could be an enormous secret connected with the Altanen antenna, and one that might not be entirely unknown to certain members of the scientific community, as will be seen. Researcher Bruce Cathy, a New Zealander, who among other things had a famous series of UFO sightings, has developed a theory about the antenna based on its position on the planet. Cathy's theory suggests that the antenna may be part of an ancient planetary grid that is of fundamental importance to an understanding of our planet and the great 25,000 year cycle known as the precession of the equinox. Could it be possible that the Altanen antenna is a piece of ancient technology or even technology that comes from another world? Cathy certainly thinks so. Other researchers are now suggesting that modern science might be well aware of the purpose of the object and might be actively monitoring it or using it in some way. Mr. Cathy considers 144, the harmonic reciprocal of the speed of light, to be an important measure of the Earth's grid because it divides into the planet's 21,600 minutes of arc exactly 150 times. An individual interested in Cathy's ideas began measuring outward in steps from the antenna and to his surprise found that the Prospect Point Antarctic Base is precisely eight of these measures away. Add another unit of 144 and you find two more Antarctic bases, Hemus and St Kilmet. Remarkably, a whole array of bases and earthquake stations surround the Altanen antenna. What this may mean is unknown, but it is certainly suggestive that the Altanen antenna is no strange marine creature, but rather an object of great importance that someone understands very well. And from the www.newscientist.com, an article by Stephen Battersby. Following along the lines of these ancient antennas and mysterious transmissions. Mysterious radio waves emitted from a nearby galaxy. There is something strange in the cosmic neighbourhood. An unknown object in the nearby galaxy M82 has started sending out radio waves 
and the emission does not look like anything seen anywhere in the universe before. We don't know what it is, says co-discoverer Tom Muxlow of Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics near Macclesfield in the UK. The thing appeared in May last year while Muxlow and his colleagues were monitoring an unrelated stellar explosion in M82 using the Merlin network of radio telescopes in the UK. A bright spot of radio emission emerged over only a few days, quite rapidly in astronomical terms. Since then it has done very little except baffle astrophysicists. It certainly does not fit the pattern of radio emissions from supernova. They usually get brighter over a few weeks and then fade away over months, with the spectrum of radiation changing all the time. The new source has hardly changed in brightness over the course of a year, and its spectrum is steady. Yet it does seem to be moving, and fast. Its apparent sideways velocity is four times the speed of light. Such apparent superluminal motion has been seen before in high-speed jets of material squirted out by some black holes. The stuff in these jets is moving towards us at a slight angle and travelling at a fair fraction of the speed of light and the effects of relativity produce a kind of optical illusion that makes the motion appear superluminal. Could the object be a black hole? It's not quite in the middle of M82, where astronomers would expect to find the kind of supermassive central black hole that most other galaxies have, which leaves the possibility that it could be a smaller scale microquasar. A microquasar is formed after a very massive star explodes, leaving a black hole around 10 to 20 times the mass of the Sun, which then starts feeding on gas from a surviving companion star. Microquasars do emit radio waves, but none seen in our galaxy is as bright as the new source in M82. Microquasars also produce plenty of X-rays, whereas no X-rays have been seen from the mystery object. So that's not right either, Muxlow told New Scientist. His best guess is still that the radio source is some kind of dense object accreting surrounding material, perhaps a large black hole or a black hole in an unusual environment. Perhaps the phenomenon also happens occasionally in our galaxy, but is more common in M82 because it is a starburst galaxy a cosmic cauldron where massive stars are forming and exploding at a much higher rate than in the Milky Way, creating a lot of new black holes. And now to a few stories from the paranormal. From the paranormal.about.com website, a clinically dead boy saw Granny in heaven. A three-year-old boy brought back from the dead after his heart stopped beating for three hours has told how he saw his great-grandmother in heaven. The youngster, who is named only as Paul, claimed he met his relative and she sent him back to earth. Paul was playing on his own when he fell into a lake near his grandparents' house in the town of Lycan, north of Berlin in Germany. The child's grandfather later found him lifeless in the water. Paul was quickly dragged back to the shore, but the youngster remained unconscious. 
His father, who had had first aid training in the past, tried to resuscitate his son by giving him mouth-to-mouth and heart massage. A helicopter took him to Helios Hospital in Book, and doctors also tried to resuscitate him, but he was unresponsive. They were about to stop because the boy had been clinically dead for 3 hours and 18 minutes. But then a miracle happened. The team managed to get his heart beating again, defying the laws of medicine. The water in the lake was cold and the boy's core temperature was just 28 degrees Celsius. It should normally be 37. If the temperature had been higher, the team would have stopped trying to resuscitate after 40 minutes because the boy would have definitely been brain dead. Cold temperatures means the metabolism slows so the body can survive with little oxygen. The professor of paediatrics from the Helios Hospital told Sky News, My doctors were close to saying we can do no more after two hours of thorax compression. He said this was because the chances of survival had gone and the little lad must have been brain dead. The professor added, But then suddenly his heart started beating again. It was a fantastic miracle. I've been doing this job for 30 years and have never seen anything like this. It goes to show the human body is a very resilient organism and you should never give up. The boy is happy and healthy. It's a wonderful thing. And from the www.unsolved.com forward slash legends website, Ghost Blimp. A blimp patrolling the California coast during World War II crashes, but crew members are not on board. In 1942, the final outcome of World War II was still very much in doubt. The United States had every reason to fear that the Japanese would launch an all-out attack on the West Coast. Military historian and author Carol V. Glines sets the scene. There were known to be Japanese submarines operating off the coast. There had been an attack on an oil refinery down near Santa Monica near Los Angeles. There was a great fear that there would be more attacks. The Navy responded to the threat by putting together a fleet of 12 blimps to patrol the Californian coastline. The mission of Airship Squadron 32 was largely uneventful. That is, until August of 1942, when one of the blimps crashed on a street in Daly City, California. The two-man crew was not on board. That day, the legend of the ghost blimp was born. Historian Ken Gillespie lived in Daly City at the time. It was almost impossible for the crew members not to have been seen by somebody, but nobody saw them go, nobody saw them jump, and there are no relics of them at all. It's a real puzzle. The legend of the ghost blimp began in San Francisco on August 16, 1942. It was early on a Sunday morning when Flight 101 prepared to take off. The pilots were 27-year-old Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and 34-year-old Ensign Charles Ellis Adams. Both were experienced and reliable, which made the events of the next five hours even more mysterious. Aviation machinist's mate Riley Hill was supposed to go with Adams and Cody that morning. Adams had flown in the large dirigibles and was thoroughly checked out but he had never flown in the small blimps. 
This was an indoctrination flight for him that Sunday morning. Just before departure, Riley Hill was ordered off the blimp for some unknown reason. Hill now believes that heavy moisture in the air was weighing the blimp down, making it unsafe to take off with the three men on board. The flight plan called for the blimp to leave Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay, pass over the Golden Gate Bridge, then head to the remote Farallon Islands, 25 miles off the coast. From there, Flight 101 would continue north to Point Reyes, then south along the coastline. The first leg of the patrol went smoothly, but an hour and a half after takeoff, Lieutenant Cody radioed squadron headquarters and said, Position four miles east of the Farallons. Stand by. Four minutes later, Cody called again and reported an oil slick on the water. According to Riley Hill, those were the last words ever received from Flight 101. Three hours passed with no word from the crew. Flight commanders became alarmed. Frantic attempts to contact the blimp went unanswered. Finally, a message was received, but it wasn't from Flight 101. It was a report that a blimp had somehow drifted eight miles off course and had just come ashore south of San Francisco. Ken Gillespie recalls the event. There was a swimmer, a man named Mr Kapileva, who was standing nearby ready to go in the water when all of a sudden he saw this huge grey mass just coming out of the fog right at him. Remember, this thing is 47 feet wide and it wasn't too high off the water. And he watched it come in. It dragged its wheel along the sand at the water's edge, then hit a little sand knoll. It bounced up in the air and then moved up a little bit of a canyon and then hit rather heavily on the side of the canyon. This knocked off what turned out to be a depth charge. The collapsing blimp was seen by hundreds of people. Flight 101 quickly lost altitude and headed straight for the homes in the hills of Daly City. According to Ken Gillespie, one woman's house almost became the point of impact. Miraculously, no one was injured when the blimp landed in the middle of the street. Almost immediately, Daly City officials were on the scene. When Navy personnel arrived, they were shocked to discover that there was no sign of Lieutenant Cody or Ensign Adams. The door was latched open, which was a highly unusual in-flight position. The safety bar, normally used to block the doorway, was no longer in place, and the microphone hooked to an outside loudspeaker, dangled from a gondola. Lieutenant Cody's cap rested on the instrument panel and two of the three life jackets on board were missing, suggesting the crew had put them on before takeoff as regulations required. A locked briefcase containing top secret codes was still in its place. It was as if Cody and Adams had opened the door and simply stepped out into thin air. The Navy investigation revealed that Flight 101 was seen by several ships and planes between 7 and 11 a.m. Some of the eyewitnesses said they were close enough to see Cody and Adams in the gondola and everything seemed normal. Theories emerged almost immediately about what had happened to the two men. Some believed that Cody and Adams spotted an enemy submarine. When they descended to investigate, they were taken prisoner. According to another rumour, the pilots were involved in a lover's triangle with an unknown woman. Supposedly, one murdered the other during the flight, then fled when the blimp crashed. 
Naval investigators came up with their own theory. They believe that one of the officers climbed out of the gondola to fix a mechanical problem and had some kind of trouble. The second pilot came to his aid and then both men fell overboard. A year later, Lieutenant Ernest Cody and Ensign Charles Adams were officially declared dead. The blimp itself was repaired. After the war, it became the Goodyear blimp, seen by millions at sporting events across the country. Few people were aware that the airship circling overhead was the infamous ghost blimp. And for all of you who like the top 10 stories, from the www.associatedcontent.com website, the top 10 haunted places on the planet. With today's technology and a haunted history, paranormal activity seems to be at its peak. Are some of these souls just not ready to pass to the other side? Or is there something holding them here? Each spot on the list has seen the face of death many times, as the victims suffered in bizarre acts of cruelty. Listed below in alphabetical order are my picks for the top 10 haunted places on Earth. And this article's by Kevin Lamb. Number 1. Auschwitz Concentration Camp, Poland. This death camp was in operation from 1940 to 1945. It's been estimated between 2.1 to 2.5 million people lost their lives at the gas chamber on this spot. This estimate is considered by historians to be strictly a minimum. Auschwitz was also used as a cremation site for the dead. Once inside the gas chamber, Zyklon 13 gas was used to kill up to 4,420 people in 20 minutes. Nearly everyone who visits this site is overwhelmed by the sensations they receive from this area. Some have broken down and left the tour unable to finish. The ever-present cold spots are usually felt during the tours, as well as certain ghosts who like to follow along. Recent photographs have revealed spirit manifestations, misty apparitions, light abnormalities, and also orbs in the surrounding areas. With all of the murder that went on in this horrible place, it could quite possibly be the most haunted place on the planet. This was a camp designated for the extinction of the Jewish race and several other races. Number two, the catacombs of Paris in France. In an effort to make room for the growing population in Paris, Engineers decided to relocate the remains of the dead. Millions of Parisian dead were quietly disinterred and deposited along the walls of the underground catacombs. Take a walk along these catacombs at night and see what kind of vibes you get. 
An extensive amount of literature has been published about the catacombs and their original purpose. Over a million people are reported to tour these catacombs each year as they stare fixedly at the empty eye sockets of the skulls lined along these endless walls. Many visitors on the tour have reported ghostly inhabitants who tag along on some of the tours in the catacombs. Some of these tours have been cancelled due to a growing sense of unease. So be careful if you visit this spot and take an unguided tour. Some people have wandered off and have never been seen again. Don't let these catacombs be your final resting spot. Number three, the Colosseum in Rome, Italy. This is a place where death was considered entertainment. Thousands of religious victims were persecuted as numerous methods of death entertained the curious spectators at the Colosseum. But below the Colosseum floor in the inner working area is where death waited as many animals and gladiators anticipated their fate. This is considered by many to be one of the hotspots of the Colosseum. Numerous guides, security guards and citizens have also reported seeing Roman citizens sitting in the seats of the Colosseum. Sounds of sword fighting and cheers have also been heard coming from the Colosseum. Even the sight of a Roman soldier standing guard is sometimes referred to as a common occurrence. With so many lives sacrificed on this site, there's no doubt of unhappy spirits haunting this particular site. Number 4. Gettysburg, Pennsylvania In the three-day Civil War battle in Gettysburg, an estimated 51,000 Americans lost their lives on this ominous spot. The mere mention of Gettysburg brings out hundreds of ghost stories of apparitions throughout the surrounding area. This battle was not only fought on the battlefield, but in the town as well. Most of the bodies were left on the streets until burial could be provided. This only adds to the unhappy spirits that dominate this town. Several bed and breakfast rooms are available along with a haunted history to go with a good night's sleep, if you can. Many buildings in town are also reported to be haunted as well as a Pennsylvania hall at the campus. This hall was used as a headquarters during the Civil War by the Confederacy. Officers as well as General Lee used this dorm to observe the progress of the war. Numerous sightings of officers roaming the old dorm are very often reported. Farms and many houses in the area all report paranormal activity. Gettysburg has been a hotspot for paranormal activities since the Civil War ended. Seems like the main occupants of this town are of the ghostly nature. Number 5. New Orleans, Louisiana. This city is reported by many to be the most haunted place in the world. With over 200 years of history with voodoo legends and curses, the French Quarter in New Orleans ranked number one of haunted places in a recent poll. 
The provincial hotel, which was a temporary Civil War infirmary, performed hundreds of surgical practices. Amputation, which was thought to prevent gangrene at the time. Ghosts who look to be doctors are sometimes seen performing these amputations on their patients. Sheets in the hotel have also been reported to be soaked in blood by unhappy guests. Numerous murders, along with the pirate law, have added its own mystique to the area. Several mansions in the area also provide haunted tours, as well as the widely renowned haunted mausoleums at the above-ground graveyards. These old graveyards have been referred to as the cities of the dead. Number 6. The Queen Mary With its resting place in Long Beach, California, the Queen Mary is possibly the most haunted ship in history. This colossal ship was bigger, faster and even more powerful than the infamous Titanic. At 1,000 feet long, the Queen Mary began her life in 1930, when the first keel plate was laid. Hosting numerous dignitaries and carrying more than 80,000 troops during World War II, this ship played a significant part in the war effort. But there's also a different side to the ship. Several sources report that there are 150 known spirits that haunt this ship. In the last 60 years, this ship has been the site of at least 49 reported deaths. Below the water level is where most of the ghostly activity takes place. The engine room is reported as the hotbed of paranormal activity. When the Queen Mary was used in the movie The Poseidon Adventure, the room's door, number 13, crushed at least two men to death. One of the young men crushed to death has been reported seen walking the length of the alley before he disappears near door 13. Other hotspots on the ship are the first and second class swimming pools. Although closed for three decades, women have been seen using the pools in 30s style clothing. Sounds of splashing water and wet footprints have also been reported going from the pool to the dressing room area. Numerous staterooms and also the children's playroom have also reported high-pitched squeals and numerous aromas from smells long since past. Number 7. The Tower of London For over 900 years, the Tower of London has developed a very mysterious reputation. This tower is the home of beheading, torture and hangings. The tower was also a prison to some of the nobles in history. The bloody tower was the scene of the infamous murders of two princes, Edward V and Richard, Duke of York, in 1483. According to sources, guards in the 15th century passing the tower spotted two small figures gliding down the stairs. They stood silently and then faded into the stones of the tower. These figures were again spotted in 1674 and identified as the two young princes. Workmen at the tower complex discovered a chest which is believed to contain the skeletons of the young princes. A royal burial and ceremony was provided 
for the two young men. Queen Anne is reported to appear near the Queen's house, as well as her headless body walking around the corridor of the tower. The Queen of England, who was the second wife to Henry VIII, was beheaded in 1536. Others were also very unwilling to die and fought for their lives. Such is the case with the Countess of Salisbury, who was executed in 1541 for treason, again by King Henry VIII. The 68-year-old Countess refused to submit to the beheading block and was hewn down as the executioner chased after her and hacked at her with the axe. Most of the ghostly figures spotted at the tower have been those who have met their death on this historic spot. Number 8. Transylvania, Land of Dracula In the heart of the Carpathian Mountains lies a land of history, death and numerous hauntings. A foreboding presence is felt as the inhospitable roads wind their way through the Transylvanian Alps. This is an area so remote that no major highways were built until 1974. It's in this desolate land that a legend was born, none other than Vlad III, the Impaler. Countless victims were tortured and impaled as he watched them slowly die. It's in with this land that the legend of Dracula was born and his infamous haunted castle resides. Tales of werewolves, vampires and ghosts abound in this old country of Transylvania. If haunted is what you want, then be sure to visit the castle of Dracula, which was a temporary residence of Prince Vlad Tepes III. An average of 450,000 visitors frequent the castle each year. If you really like the castle, save your money because it's up for sale. In 2007, the castle was put up for sale at $78 million. But some have forecasted that it could possibly be sold for around $135 million. Number 9. Underground Vaults in Edinburgh, Scotland Below the busy streets of Edinburgh, Scotland, lies a deep, dark and almost forgotten place. The Underground Vaults of the dead. Overcrowding in the 18th century forced development to be built underground. Merchants such as craftsmen and storage of wine and cheese were guarded by underground caretakers. Some families did live in these arch-vaulted rooms, but without sunlight the conditions were barely habitable. Soon the existences of these vaults were deemed inhabitable and erased from the public record. Then 200 years later they were discovered and excavations began to shed new light on these forgotten chambers. Numerous tourist sightings have suggested extremely high paranormal activities. Investigations on these vaults have revealed orbs and numerous sightings of ghost activities. These vaults are also mentioned in the Guinness Book of Records and are reported as the most haunted place in Britain. And finally, number 10, Waverley Hills Sanatorium, Louisville, Kentucky. The Waverley Hills Sanatorium first opened its doors on July 26, 1910, as a tuberculosis hospital. 
Tuberculosis being a very serious disease, its patients were kept isolated from the rest of the community. Thousands of people died at Waverley before the drug streptomycin was invented. It has been estimated that up to 64,000 people died on this spot. In 1961, the tuberculosis hospital was closed and opened a year later as Brookhaven Mental Institution. In 1982, the building was shut down permanently by the state due to patient abuse. Since 1982, the building has been vacant other than its paranormal residence. Numerous sightings on the third and fifth floors are where most of the paranormal activity takes place. Room 502 is a favourite spot in the hospital. In 1928, the head nurse hung herself from the light fixture in this room. Another nurse who worked in room 502 also jumped off the balcony of the roof in 1932. No one knows why. The body chute or the death tunnel is another favourite spot in the old hospital. This 500 foot tunnel is where the dead bodies of the tuberculosis patients were transported to awaiting hearses. I personally have been inside this hospital and have also felt something brush past me in the darkness of the death tunnel. While living three miles from this spot, the closest I'll ever see of Waverley again is from the windshield of my car as its roof peeks out from the trees high on top of a hill in Kentucky. And the author was Kevin Lamb. And I'd just like to give a few thank yous to people who were kind enough to review the podcast. On the iTunes US store, Sarah Winsome. Amazing podcast, fascinating stories combined with the speaker's hypnotic voice and great use of inflection make this one I always look forward to. Thanks for making my workday just a bit better. Oh, thank you, Sarah. From Da Big Sativa... I love listening to this guy. He's got an awesome storytelling ability, such a calm and soothing voice. I go to sleep every night listening to Mysteries Abound. Awesome. Keep the shows coming, please. Sean from San Diego. And from Gregory C. Parker. Exceptional work by a very talented man. Ooh, thank you. His presentation skills are one of the best for any podcast I have ever listened to. It was interesting to listen to the early ones and then the recent ones and see how he evolved. A skillful combination of fact, legend and fantasy presented in a very interesting way. If you do believe that the world is not only stranger than we imagine, but is stranger than we can imagine, I stole that from someone smarter than me, you will enjoy his work. For travelling, working at my computer or just relaxing, I really enjoy this podcast. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Gregory. Great review. Very much appreciated. 
And finally, one from Podcast Ellie by Mr. Goldspink. Shh, my favourite show. Almost don't want to tell anyone, as it feels like the best kept secret on the net. If you don't love it, you've had a lobotomy. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 33 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. The music came from themusicalley.com and the bandwidth for the podcast is supplied by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. And as of next week, we're bringing a new sponsor on board, audible.com. And if you see a link on the website and are interested in their audiobooks, click on the link. It will take you to their website and there's an offer going there that you might be interested in. Anyway, it's bye for now.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.